turn together to the book of Philippians. Our text this morning is the first chapter, verses 15 through 18. I'll be beginning at verse 12, however, in our reading. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. This is the very Word of the living and true God. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. And it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this, Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would plant it deep within our hearts, that we might not just be hearers of the Word, but that we might be doers, that it might impress Your will, Your purpose for our lives upon our very being. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been going now for a few weeks through the book of Philippians. And one of the things that I hope that you have noticed as we have gone through is that Paul has been laying out characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ. Characteristics, we might even say, of a healthy, vibrant church of Jesus Christ. And so it had been my intention from the very beginning of starting this book, to lay out before us a template, a model that we as Christ church might follow, that we might be a church focused upon the things that the Lord is focused upon, that we might be a church where love and relationships and fellowship are found, that we might be a church where the gospel is always found. And this morning is no exception. This morning is a very difficult passage. We almost come to it with one of two minds. We look at it and we wonder, well, why did Paul have to break the good mood that he had going on? He shouldn't have bothered to say anything about this difficulty. Or we look at it from the other direction and we say, I wish Paul would have told me so much more. What kind of gospel are these other folks preaching? What was the rivalry about? How many factions were there? Can you give us more information, Paul? But Paul treads a godly path. He gives us enough information to get us focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he holds his tongue where it would lead to gossip or difficulty. And so this morning, what I would like us to see is the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
in spite of all circumstances. And the first thing that we will see is how the gospel is advancing in goodwill. Advancing in goodwill. And then secondly, we will see the gospel as it is advancing in ill will or bad will. The gospel advances regardless of the motives of others. And then the third thing that we will see is how the gospel is advancing in God's will. In goodwill, in ill will, and in God's will. Well, let's begin then by looking here at verse 15. We see the gospel is advancing in goodwill. As Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. You see, the context here is that the gospel is going forward at Philippi. Paul's public ministry is having effect. And it's having effect not just in the church that he planted at Philippi, but in Rome itself, where he is in prison. The gospel goes forward. We saw last week, or two weeks ago, that that was that one of the reasons that the gospel was going forward was because of Paul's suffering, the Roman church was bold to preach the gospel. They were going out and doing what Paul was doing. You know that Paul is bold to preach the gospel. We talked about the fact that he had a Roman soldier chained to himself 24 hours a day, and he saw that as a mission field as they rotated through and were chained to him. But Paul gives us a little bit more detail about the boldness and the preaching that's going on. He says, on the one hand, first, it is from those who bear goodwill. And part of the reason for this boldness is because of the Roman church and its people having a love for people. A love for real people. You see, they had a goodwill toward Paul, a goodwill toward the lost. The church at Rome that was preaching the gospel boldly was not concerned about power or culture. They were not worried about whether or not they would have influence in the Roman Senate or whether or not it would be a culturally acceptable thing to preach the gospel at Rome. They weren't concerned if the authorities were upset. They were bold because the authority, God himself, had told them to preach it. And they had a love and a desire to see real people that they knew. Perhaps their grocer. Perhaps their shoemaker. Perhaps a friend down the street who was wandering through life not knowing Jesus. And that made them bold because they could not stand to see their friends, their acquaintances, their co-workers miss out on knowing who Jesus Christ is. They could not stand to hold the command of God to take the gospel to every creature under heaven and put it under their cloak. No, they were concerned for real people and for their lives. They were also concerned that God's good will toward others would be brought forth. You see, the gospel, evangelism, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ is not a suggestion. It's not something that good churches do. It's not something that special churches do. It's something that every Christian is called to because it is the command of God himself. And you see, Paul knew that these Christians had been recipients of that very grace and love that had come from God. 
And they could not keep it to themselves. They knew that it was God's will that His gospel be preached indiscriminately at Rome and at every other place where Christians are found. Their desire was to see the good of those around them. You see, oftentimes we forget that. We think about the advance of the church and our programs and the blessings that we could be to each other. And all of that is important. But we cannot ever lose sight of the fact that there are others out in the world that need to know of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our love for them requires that we tell them the truth. Not that we pretend everything is okay. Not that we pretend it doesn't matter what you believe. No, our love for others requires that we tell them there is only one way to be right with God. There is only one way to have eternal life. There is only one way to find meaning. And that is in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, giving the gospel to others is not butting into their business. You can do it after a fashion of butting into their business. We have to be careful about our methods. But bringing the gospel to others is showing them love and concern. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is behind our service in the kingdom? Is it so that others might look to us and point to us and say what a fine job we're doing? Is it even perhaps that we think we will get some form of heavenly reward? Or is behind our service a love for those whom God has placed in our path? A desire to point out to them the goodness, mercy, and blessing of God. These Christians had a good will not only toward their hearers, but they also had a good will toward Paul himself. You'll notice what he says here in verse 17. Excuse me, in verse 16, he says, The latter do it out of love. That is, those who preach Christ from goodwill, they do it out of love, out of a heart of love. Not only for those who are around them, but for Paul himself. You see, their goodwill toward Paul was flowing out of a love that they had for him. They knew him. They cared for him. They were made bold by his actions. And so they preached the gospel because one of the reasons was that they knew Paul would want them to. And they wanted to serve the Lord and to serve Paul and to show their love for him. You see, they understood that God was in the midst of Paul's circumstances. Paul says, they know, they know this fact. They do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. It was a sure knowledge. The Greek word that is used here has the sense of having thought about it, figured it out, and being certain about it. This is the kind of thing that we might say in the vernacular, you bet the house on. You know this for certain, that Paul has been set for the defense of the gospel, that God himself had placed him there. It was not because of Paul's disobedience. It was not because the plan had gotten off track. No, God himself had placed Paul in prison at Rome that the gospel might go forward. The language that's used here by Paul of being put is the same word that is used of our Lord Jesus Christ as a baby. You remember that famous passage 
in the temple where Simeon says that this child has been set, has been appointed for mercy to Israel and for judgment. Jesus Christ had a purpose in his life, a purpose ordained by God. And so did Paul. Paul was put there permanently for the work of the gospel. But the word also has another connotation. It has the connotation of being put on duty. You see, Paul is in prison, but Paul is not on the sidelines. You know, one of the main differences between watching an NBA game and an NFL game or a Major League Baseball game is that when an NBA player is on the sidelines, he doesn't wear a uniform. He wears a suit. You see, there's no way he's getting in the game. He's completely on the sidelines observing. He may cheer, he may pump his fist, but there's no way he's getting out on the court. You see, Paul is not standing on the side in a suit. Paul's still got his uniform on. Others may think that he's out on the sidelines because he's in prison, but no, not for the work of God. He is active. He is preaching the gospel everywhere that he can be. And so those around him see this and they are emboldened. And they say, we're not embarrassed by Paul's stature. We're not embarrassed by his circumstances. We're going to follow his example because he has been a blessing to us. And you see, one of the benefits of this is that their preaching of the gospel was designed to encourage Paul in his ministry. They were, as it were, repaying his ministry to them. You remember just before, just a few verses earlier, Paul and his work of preaching the gospel emboldened those who were at Rome, made them bold to preach the gospel, made them excited to bring the gospel to others. And so they're just repaying the favor. They're going out and preaching boldly, knowing that Paul will be lifted up. And this is how a church works. You see, we don't have an evangelism team. We don't have specialists in the church. We lift each other up. We push each other forward in the work of the gospel by encouraging one another and seeing successes in one another. You see, the work of the gospel is not just for those who are out there. The work of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel has its blessing in the church. It encourages God's people. It lifts up their faces. It fires their hearts with love for the Savior. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel that advances in the good will of those who were preaching boldly. But, sad to say, it was not all smiles, laughter, and happiness in this church at Rome. There were those who also preached the gospel with great vigor and with fervor. But they did it out of an ill will, out of a desire to harm Paul. Do you notice what he says here? He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Now, there is a clear connection between verse 15 and verse 14. Do not mentally put a line between those verses and say to yourself, well, these people, they're, they're not real Christians. They're preaching a false gospel. And so the difference between them and the, the good, happy, good-willed Christians is their faith. No. Paul is saying here something that you all well know. 
that Christians aren't perfect and that oftentimes some of the nastiest, most wicked, most harmful behavior occurs in the church where people have their defenses down. This is what's happening here at Rome. It is these brothers, Paul calls them. These brothers who have been bold to preach the gospel who are doing it out of envy and rivalry. Now, we think about envy. It is a particularly wicked motive to do something. Envious preaching is about as sorry that a motive for preaching as you could find. Because envy is not just, as we sometimes think about it, looking over at what someone else has and wanting it. That's more what we would call coveting. Someone has something, wish I had one too. No. Envy goes the step further. Envy says, he has something, I want it, he shouldn't have it. I'm going to take it from him. So I have it and he doesn't. Not only do I want it, I want to hurt the other person. This is being annoyed at seeing the success of a friend. Have you ever experienced this? Perhaps you've watched it from afar as a friend of yours has talked to another acquaintance where they describe how they got a promotion or how they're going to have a child. And the other person's countenance just sours into a sneer. Oh, glad you got a promotion. I didn't get a promotion. Have you ever experienced that? You see, that's what's happening here with those who are at Rome and Paul. The context in which this word envy is used throughout the Scriptures is actually sub-Christian. It's one of the things that makes this passage so difficult because every list that you see envy in, in the Bible, except for here, Paul is describing the miserable condition of those who do not know God. And so here we have a situation where we have believers preaching the gospel in a manner worthy of unbelievers and pagans. Think about that. What kind of a motive is that to bring the gospel to others? They're thinking to themselves, well, why should Paul be so important? He's a big shot apostle. We were doing quite fine until he came over here and had to come to prison. Why does he get all the press? Why does everyone want to talk to him? Why does everyone want to read his books? Why does everyone want to talk to him with counseling? Why don't they come to us? We're perfectly good. We're perfectly important. You see, they were envious of Paul. And they would begin to make up excuses as to why Paul was in the place where he was. You see, they didn't think Paul was put there by God for the advancement of the gospel. They were saying to themselves things like, Well, you see, Paul must not be preaching a very pure gospel because... God's punishing him by putting him in prison. He wouldn't be in prison unless God wanted him there. And God's punishing him. He's He's chastening him for what he's done. There might be others reminiscent of those who are on the television today, seemingly 24 hours a day, who would say, well, you see, the problem with Paul is he just doesn't have enough faith. If Paul would just claim his freedom, I'm sure the doors to the jail would burst wide open like they did at Philippi. Poor little faith Paul. If he would only come over to us and we could teach him to have enough faith, his whole life would be perfect. 
My guess is the doors would burst open and the guards would throw money at him as he was going out the door. Right? Isn't that how you tell how much faith someone has? By how big their car is? By how big their house is? And by how big their bank account is? Isn't that how you tell how much faith someone has? By how healthy they are? No. But this would be an accusation they would throw against Paul. They might also say, well, you know, Paul was good back then. But you know, God wants to do something new now. Something new and exciting. And we are the people to take the plan forward. So God's doing us and the kingdom a favor by taking Paul and putting him over on ice for a while so that we can really preach the gospel the way it's supposed to be done. And we can see really big things happen. There might even be others who would say to themselves, well, you know, if Paul was really true to the gospel, he'd have been martyred weeks ago, months ago. I mean, come on. He must have said something at some time to offend a soldier, to knock his head off with a sword. Paul must be a compromiser because he's been sitting in jail for a while now. If he was really go for the gusto like we are, he'd have been martyred a long time ago. And these things they say in the church, and it festers. But the irony here is this gives them the incentive to go out and preach the gospel with great fervor so they can prove Paul wrong. God using their envy to build up his kingdom. You see, they might be seeing this as their chance to preach correctly, to correct all of the little nuances Paul didn't get right. And so they go out with great fervor and zeal. But it's not just that they are envious in their preaching. They're also ambitious in their preaching. They do it out of rivalry. And again here Paul says it in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry. Looking at those two verses, verse 15 and verse 17, you might think they are the same word. They're not. They're very close cognates. The first word for rivalry, has to do with strife, struggle, rivalry, one-upsmanship. But the second word for rivalry carries a connotation of ambition. It actually comes from a root that began as meaning working for hire. Now, there's nothing wrong with working for hire, is there? Those of you that will go to work on Monday will expect to be paid for it. And that's a good thing. The worker is worthy of his wages. But when you go to work only for the money, when you don't care about the company, you don't care about the job, you don't care about the co-workers, you don't care about the quality of your work, you're just there for the paycheck, it takes on a bit of a different connotation, doesn't it? And you see, that's what this word means. It means I'm only in it for what I can get. I'm in it for the money. I'm in it for what's coming to me. And you see, this is what they are preaching for. They are preaching out of an ambition that they have put in front of themselves. Now, we know that they are not preaching heresy for two reasons. The first is that Paul calls them brothers, a term that he does not use with the Galatian false teachers or even later here with the Philippian false teachers. You see, Paul is not afraid to mix it up where the gospel is concerned. 
He's not saying to himself, well, you know, they're preaching bad things, but I better not say anything because then some harm could come to me. No, all you have to do is turn maybe a page or two in your Bible to chapter 3, and you'll see what Paul does when someone starts preaching a false gospel. He says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul can mix it up pretty good. And this is just a couple of chapters later. He doesn't have any respect for what they're preaching or teaching because they're preaching a false gospel. But here he says what they're preaching is true. I just wish they didn't have to be so miserable in their motives about it. I wish they didn't have to be so ambitious about what they were going to get out of the gospel. But I'm so glad that they're actually preaching the truth of God's word. You see, the idea here, the word that's used for preach in this sentence is proclaim with authority. It's not just the regular word for preach. It's the regular word for preach with another word tacked onto it to make it a super authoritative word. Paul is saying they are preaching with power and with authority. That is a good thing. But it's not good why they're doing it. You see, they're doing it out of selfish ambition. They're doing it like those folks that you occasionally see on the evening news and you toss your head in disgust at. You know what I'm talking about. People that are called career politicians. Those who, for example, will give a long and powerful speech about a principle that you must hold to and will introduce legislation to that effect. And then several years later, do the exact opposite when it suits them. And then a few years later, do the exact opposite again when it suits them. Whatever they can do to climb up the ladder... It's not just politicians, is it? You may see that in your workplace. Those who are so interested with getting up the ladder, they don't care which fingers, heads, or noses they step on to get there. All they know is they're going to be at the top of the ladder. This is the kind of ambition, rivalry, that is found amongst those who are preaching with ill will. You see, their focus is on the wrong place. They're saying to themselves, well, we don't owe Paul anything. Paul didn't found this church. Paul hasn't led this church. What do we, why do we need to defer to Paul? What do we owe him? And they might even say to themselves, now is the chance for us to get our power back. Now, I'm sure that none of you have ever seen a power play in a church. You have never seen someone only concerned with being the head of Sunday school or VBS or the session or the diaconate or the ladies' Bible study or the men's group. You've never experienced anyone who's ever done that. If that's the case, you probably have never been in church before. You see, because ambition and sin finds itself in all of us. And even as Christians, we are in the process of rooting out sin. Now, we can pray that in healthy churches, there will be much less of this. We can also pray that just as Paul didn't tolerate it, it wouldn't be tolerated. But you see, the problem here is the focus. It's not just the behavior. 
You see, the focus has slipped off God and the gospel and onto themselves. And you see, the result of that is this kind of preaching is not just envious. It's not just ambitious. It's divisive. You see, they're not thinking clearly about what's going on. Paul says in verse 16, of those who are preaching from goodwill, that they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And you'll recall that we said that that kind of knowing was a sure knowing, a thinking about it, testing it kind of knowing. But he says the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You see, they're not knowing, they're thinking. We might even translate this word imagining, supposing, falsely assuming that they are going to inflict harm upon me. You see, they're not thinking clearly because of their rivalry, their ambition, and their envy. Now, surely you have experienced this too in your life. On an occasion where you are caught in ambition, or perhaps you're envious of something someone has, or someone has experienced this with you, you look and you say, it doesn't look like they're thinking clearly at all. They're not making good decisions. Or, I don't know why I did that. I guess I wasn't thinking clearly. That's what's going on here with those who are preaching the gospel from ill will. You see, they are still thinking according to secular thought patterns. They're still worried about the equivalent of Donald Trump walking up to them and saying, you're fired. They think that's the most important thing in life, is to be on top, to be in control. But you see, that's not what the gospel is all about. That's why they're imagining this difficulty to Paul. But you see, they're not just thinking unclearly, they're also dividing themselves. You see, on the one hand, they are speaking of the love of God and the mercy of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ and how all are equal at the foot of the cross and how those whom Christ has bought, He protects, He provides for. And with all of their actions, they are seeking to harm to denigrate, to push down one for whom Jesus Christ has died, namely Paul. Their actions are completely contrary to their words. Their hearts are completely divided from their testimony. You see, we might ask them, how can you preach a saving Christ in a way in which you hope adds pain to someone else? It doesn't make any sense. And so we need to Think about that ourselves. When we preach the gospel, when we speak to others, do we do it out of a fashion in which makes us seem a little bit better than they are? Makes our family seem a little bit more together than theirs? Makes our life seem just a little bit better than theirs? Or do we do it in a way in which comports with our words that God, through His great mercy, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is drawing to Himself a people that He might live in relationship with them and bless them forever. You see, 
They're divided amongst themselves. And you know the old saw. A house divided against itself cannot stand. One or the other must give way. But they're not just divided amongst themselves. They're also dividing the church. They're setting camps up. Who's pro-Paul? Who's anti-Paul? Who's pro-preaching the gospel this way? Who's pro-preaching the gospel that way? They're setting up divisions in the church rather than pushing forward and using this opportunity to build up in unity and love. So the question comes to you this morning, Christian. What are you doing now to build up the church? I don't mean which program are you involved in. I don't mean which Bible verse are you memorizing. I don't mean how long are you spending in your quiet time. I mean, what are you doing right now to build up the church of Jesus Christ? Who are you mentoring? Who are you encouraging? Who are you serving? Who are you blessing with your life, your knowledge, and your service? You see, that is what it means to be a church that is vibrant, not divisive, but united in truth and in love. This is a difficult passage to think about. To think about those who are doing the work of the gospel in a spirit contrary to the gospel. But you see, it doesn't affect Paul to the extent that it leaves him frozen. You see, Paul can step back and he can say, Know that some are preaching the gospel fervently out of love. And quite frankly, I know that others are preaching the gospel trying to hurt me. They're trying to add pressure to my chains. That's the illustration he uses. They're trying to press in the metal of the chains into my arms. But he says, you know what? In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Look again at verse 18. Verse 18 is a model of Christian behavior. Here is a man who is being unrighteously, unjustly hurt, persecuted, afflicted by those who have every duty to care and bless him, to care for him and bless him. And how does he treat them? He treats them first with grace. You see, he has God's perspective on this issue. He has learned the lesson of the tongue that James tries to teach us, that if we can tame the tongue, we can tame anything. He treats them with grace. You see, he might have been tempted to say nothing about this issue. He had just gotten really rolling about how the gospel was going forward and how everyone was bold, and then he kind of throws a little bit of cold water on it here. But you see, there's a reason for his cold water. It's because he cares for those who preach out of envy and strife. He doesn't want them to have envy and strife in their life. He doesn't want them to have selfish ambition. And if it takes some of Paul's pain to help point these folks to repentance, he's willing, he's able. You see, he speaks with grace. 
But notice another thing. He's not afraid to talk about this issue. He doesn't hide it away in a corner and pretend it goes away. But he also fills in no detail. We don't know what the rivalry was. We don't know any names of the people who have preached. Paul is modeling 1 Corinthians 13.5. Love is not resentful. Is that a challenge for you today? When you think about someone who's hurt you. I don't mean someone who maybe you had a slight miscommunication with. I mean someone who's hurt you. Can you treat them with grace? You see, Paul knew the way God wanted him to look at this situation. And he knew it would redound to his blessing and benefit to show grace. That that's where life is found. Not in envy and in resentment. Not in one-upsmanship. Paul is gracious in God's perspective. But he also shows great wisdom here in having God's perspective. You see, because if Paul had given more detail, this would not have been a valuable lesson to the Philippians. And you know who else it wouldn't have helped? You and me. If Paul would have made a specific case out of this and said, this was about Antony, and Antony had a certain view, and he did, then we could look at ourselves and say, we're not Antony. We don't have that view. Guess we're safe. But instead, he generalizes the principle because he wants the Philippians, who we're going to see in a couple of chapters, are flirting on the edge of this kind of strife, of this kind of difficulty, of this kind of pain and division. He wants them to know where this will lead. And it's not a good thing. And so he's wise in what he does. You see what he does? He ignores what can be ignored. And he prioritizes what needs to be prioritized. He prioritizes the issue around the gospel. But he ignores the secondary, the tertiary issues. That's a challenge to us. Are we seeking God's priorities for our church? Are we seeking God's priorities for our family? Are we seeking God's priorities for our lives? Do we place His first things first in our life? Because you see, Paul wants them, and beloved, I want you to be ready for the attack from Satan. If we're honest, churches are not rife with drunkenness, debauchery, and those other kinds of gross sins. They're just not. At least not in public. But how many churches do you know that have no quarreling, no jealousy, no envy? You see, that's where Satan wants to try and find a wedge here at Christ Church. He knows he's not going to get three quarters of us to go drunk. But if he can start up a quarrel that multiplies and makes sides and gets parties, then he can stop the gospel in Katie. You see, Paul says, don't have any of it. Strike it right down. Serve the Lord. Don't sit by and accept those kinds of quarrels and difficulties in church. When you are tempted to say under your breath, well, that's church for you, repent. That's not church for you. 
It may be the way church is today. It may be the way my family is today. It may be the way my life is today, but I'm not going to be satisfied with it. No. I'm going to take the power of the gospel and the word of God and apply it to my church, to my family, and to my life. And I'm going to see God bless us. That's what we need to do as the people of God. And you see, if we have this kind of perspective, we get this joy that Paul has. We get this joy that's, in a sense, divine. It's God's joy. Because God rejoices in seeing His gospel go forward. God rejoices in seeing His word upheld. God rejoices in seeing His people built up, united and cleansed, made perfect as a bride for His Son. That thrills the Lord. It is His purpose. And we know He rejoices in it and it thrills Him because it is His will. And God's will is perfect and just and good. He rejoices in Himself and in His will. And you see, this kind of joy comes from perspective. Paul knows that discipleship has a cost. He knows there's a price to be paid. He's counted it. And if that means that his cufflinks are a little bit tighter than they should be, he's willing to live with it. Why? Because he's such a great guy? No. Because Jesus Christ is being placed before the people that are his. That's why Paul can understand. He's not bound up in these false values that the, that the ill-willed preachers are. He's not worried about his own ambition or his own stature. You see, the gospel is his first priority. And so, is that our priority? Is it our priority to be known as a place where the gospel in all its truth and purity and goodness is proclaimed? Or are we desiring to be known as the place with the beautiful building? Or the place with the great youth group? Or the place with the strong ladies luncheon. There's nothing wrong with having a beautiful building. I'm glad we do. There's nothing wrong with having a strong youth group. There's nothing wrong with having ladies get together. But the point is, is the gospel the first priority to this? And you see, if you do not know who the Lord Jesus Christ is, that is the point of faith in Christ. Is taking everything that you have and saying it's second to what God wants. Everything that I desire takes a back seat. And all of my focus, all of my energy, all of my meaning is found in Jesus. And when you find that, or better yet, when Jesus finds you, then everything else falls perfectly into place. And life isn't so much like putting together a complicated piece of machinery without a manual, trying to jam things in and smack them with a hammer. Everything just falls into place the way it should. Finally, as we think about this, Paul is also trying to get his main point across to the Philippians and to us. And that is that this kind of joy comes from unity in the truth and in love. You cannot have unity outside the truth. You must have this true gospel. Paul doesn't have any time for those who have a false gospel. 
But you cannot have unity unless you also have love as well. You must have the truth, but you must also have love. You see, because the purpose of the church is not simply to say the right things. The purpose of the church is not simply to do some good things. The purpose of the church is to glorify Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if other things don't seem to be as pretty. I was thinking about that this week, and the best illustration I could come up with, this will help the guys. I was thinking of a screen pass. A screen pass. You ever watched a really good screen pass? If a screen pass works, do you think the left tackle's worried about blocking the defensive end? No. Sometimes the best screen passes look ugly. Everybody rushes in right by the blockers. Sometimes the quarterback gets nailed just as he flips it off because it's not about making the quarterback look good. It's not about making a blocking assignment. It's not about the normal way in which football is supposed to look. It's about getting the ball to the guy with a clear lane and making the play work. In a spiritual way, that's the way church is. Everything that we do, sometimes they look ugly. But the purpose is that Jesus Christ is in front of the people of God and in front of those who need to know Him. You see, that's why Paul can say, in a sense, motives don't matter. What matters is that people are looking at Jesus. That was his single passion in life. Is it yours? Is your single passion that others would know and see the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that it is. I pray you would encourage each other to have that passion. That Jesus would be glorified. Mm -hmm.